Um, this week, um, around the office, we were cleaning out some stuff. That happens occasionally. And uh, Jeff was cleaning out his office and uh, found this thing, all right? And uh, it was just, it wasn't blown up like this. That's what we have interns for. And so Caitlin Brown blew it up for us. Uh, and it's a question ball, all right? It's a ball that you just, you spin or you throw to somebody. The idea is in a youth group, you're all around a circle. I don't know, this is pre or post Kumbaya, but it's somewhere in there. You throw it, you catch it, and you ask the question and you answer it. So I thought to kind of get us started today, um, and this will have a point, I promise. We might do this a little bit in here, all right? And so I want you to pair up with somebody in the in the congregation right now. Just go ahead and pick your partner, all right? There might be a couple of questions that would uh, cause some tension between marital, uh, between spouses. And so if you want to choose someone other than your spouse, I won't judge, all right? Um, but... All right, you got your partner, you got somebody. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin it. Whatever comes up, you're going you're gonna to talk about it, all right? And so here we go, number one. Um, if your alter ego was a character in a movie, who would it be and why? All right? So if your alter ego was a character in a movie, who would it be? Now, if there's some weird places and you got to do threes, it's all right. All right, here we go. Time for next question, next question. Free association, say the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Chia Pets. All right. All right. Shouldn't take that long. Next one. If you had to watch one movie 100 times in a row, what movie would you choose? All right. Here we go. You ready? Here's the next one. If you could live as an animal for 24 hours, what animal would you be? That's good. That's good. If your answer was anything other than lion, you are wrong. What's the coolest thing a friend has ever done for you? And if hugs are needed, you can give hugs. Not really. What's the coolest thing a friend's ever done for you? All right. Here's the last one. You ready? Last one here. If you were guaranteed an answer, what one question would you ask Jesus? If you were guaranteed an answer... That assumes that Jesus doesn't want to answer your question, by the way. I think he probably would be okay with that, right? If you were guaranteed an answer, what one question would you ask Jesus? All right, go. All right, here's the thing, all right? USA Today asked a couple of years ago adults, if there is a God, what one question would you want to ask them? And this is what they found out, all right? 19% asked, they would want to ask, is their life after death? 6% wanted to know, how long will I live? I personally do not care to know that answer, all right? And 34% said, is there a reason for me to be here? Now, here's what's interesting to me. Okay, those are big questions. I mean, we could answer them, right? I mean, is there life after death? Yes. And you get a choice of where you would like to spend it. You can spend it in... The presence of God for all eternity, or you can spend it separated from God in hell for all eternity. So we can answer that one. How long will I live? I don't have a clue, but uh, I don't really want to know. And then is there a purpose here? Yes, your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? So there is a purpose. We can answer those questions. That's, that's simplistic. There are deeper issues underneath those. And so I'm not trying to say they're just pat answers to that. 
But it got me to thinking, based on the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today, we talk about a lot the questions we would ask God. I mean, even in the last few weeks in sermons, I've said when we get to heaven and we're in the, uh, the TED Talk with Zacchaeus and I get to ask questions, this is what I'm going to ask him, right? Or when we're in the forum, the breakout session with Jairus, this is what I'm going to ask him. Now, we talk about the questions we would ask God or that we want to ask people, but have you ever thought about the questions God would ask you? And see, in Scripture today, we're going to see a story where Jesus asks a question that I believe he still wants to know the answer to from you. We're in the midst of this series called Close Encounters of the Jesus Kind, and we are looking at over the summer, we've got this week and next week and then we're finished, we're looking at over the summer these moments when Jesus encountered people and their lives were changed, or in one case, one man's life was changed not in a good direction. But for most of them, and the one today, it's good. And we're asking the question, okay, what do we learn from that? What do we see from that? We talked last week about instant change in the life of Zacchaeus, who Jesus looked up and said, come down, I'm going to your house. And he had to respond to that. Today, we're going to look at a guy who got asked a question by Jesus that seems ridiculous when you understand the circumstances, but is at the heart of what it means to truly be changed. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, but you've got your smartphone, you can look it up on the Bible app on your smartphone if you've got that, or you can just put in the browser, fbcgillisville.com slash pool healing, all right? Pool healing, and it'll take you to the scripture for the day, and actually I already give you the three points that we're going to talk about, the three big things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk in John chapter 5, the story of Jesus and the man who was an invalid, who was unable to move at the pool there in Jerusalem. Now, here's what you have to understand. This comes on the heels of a couple of big moments in the life of Jesus. He has, he has already performed a couple of miracles. He had already had a conversation with the religious leader, Nicodemus, with the woman, the Samaritan woman, who was deeply entrenched in sin, who had lived her life entrenched with sin, and he had both given them both the answers to life's biggest questions. And we get to chapter 5, And we see this interesting passage where in the story of Nicodemus, Nicodemus sought Jesus out. In the story of the Samaritan woman, Jesus seems to be walking through when the Samaritan woman comes to him as well. But in this story, Jesus specifically goes to one single individual, asks one question, makes one request, and then awaits his reply. And so today, I just want to talk about kind of the basics of all encounters with Jesus, what's required for us to truly see change in our lives. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, and so that's after the the Samaritan woman, that was after all that had happened in chapter 4 of John. It was after he had healed an official son. After this, a Jewish festival took place. Now, if you look into the, the commentaries, you look into scholars, that they will debate for pages upon pages about what festival it is. And I read some of that, and here's the conclusion. I don't know, all right? They don't know either, or they wouldn't write about it for pages and pages. It doesn't really matter. It just means that there was some kind of celebration that got Jesus to Jerusalem. So Jesus is there. After this, the Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, the headquarters of all of Judaism. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Now, let me just talk for just a second about this, because I think it's important to understand something here. For a long time, people thought the Bible was wrong here. 
because there was no evidence of things like this. Nobody heard of things like this. There wasn't any kind of evidence for it. And then about a hundred years ago, evidence started to show up. They were doing an archaeological dig near what would be known as the Sheep Gate in the northern part of the city. And what they found near the Sheep Gate in the northern part of the city were these two what looked like pools. And there were five structures built around them. In fact, when they did the excavation, we got a picture. That doesn't look like a whole lot to us. But that would have gone down into these pools. There would have been these colonnades built over them. And people would have lined this just laying around, as we're going to see in a moment. And then they found these Dead Sea Scrolls that confirmed the existence of this place and exactly where the Bible says it was. Now, here's what I will tell you, all right? This is the reason I even did all of this is to tell you this. Just every once in a while, we have to remind ourselves of this. That in... 2,000 years of archaeological digging, they have yet to come up with anything that disproves a single thing in the Bible. Okay? And what they find only serves to confirm what the Bible already says is true. This is one of those things they didn't know for a long time, and so, well, we never heard of that place. And here's the interesting thing. We'll talk in a minute about a little phrase in there that may not have been in the original text, but it's important for us to understand and, and why it's there, that it talks about an angel, and that at this place, when they uncovered it, there was a mural of an angel on it. So, just to let you know, if you hear people out there discounting the historicity of the Bible, they are speaking from assumption, not from fact. And that's important. Because the world tells us, and here's, by the way, just so you know, if they had found something that contradicted the Bible it would have been blasted on every television and radio station across the world. All right? But they haven't. And so when people come to you and say, well, you can't believe that. It's not true. Well, You've you got to be more. That takes more belief right now than I do believing in the Bible. All right? Got it? That was free. I'm not going to charge you extra today for that. All right? Same. So we go back to the Scripture. All right? Within these, within those pools, so there were these two pools, there lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame and paralyzed. So around these pools, get this out of there, five kind of covered areas around these pools, one right in the middle of the two pools and then kind of on the edges. And they're just laying around there. And as they're laying around there, they're just sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. Now we'll get in a moment while they're laying there, but here's what you have to understand. When it says there was a large number, we're not talking about 15 or 20. We're talking hundreds When the Bible says there was a lot of people there that were sick, that were blind, that were lame, that were paralyzed, you're talking about hundreds. And we would have been all laying, some of them almost on top of each other. It was kind of, we went to to Nashville Shores on Friday, right? And it was one of those days on Nashville Shores where um, they were having a movie afterwards. And so the dive-in movies, they were showing the Star Wars movie. And so we kind of jaunt over there about time for the movie to start. And everybody's already got their spot laid out. You may have ever been to Nashville Shores over there at the wave pool. Like we could have sat at the Lazy River and watched it really well. But like people had just chairs lined up, stuff laid out. So you got there as early as you could. You got your spot close to those pools and you waited. And there would have been people upon people upon people. And almost all of them would have been blind, lame, or paralyzed. Here's what I find interesting. Because the scripture teaches us here, we don't see anybody at all with Jesus. Jesus is by himself. 
One of the questions on that question ball that I didn't ask, but I saw as I was spinning through, said this, said, if Jesus were alive in your city today, where would he hang out? Now, here's what I'll tell you. The, the easy answer is, oh, he'd lay, hang out with, with poor people and with the sick. And that's true. But Scripture teaches us Jesus hung out with all people. I mean, he hung out with the rich. He hung out, at the, uh, he hung out with Nicodemus, a religious leader. He went to the Simon's home. But he also went and walked in the midst of hundreds of sick people and ministered to them. And here's the reason they were there. There was this belief. Now, if you now go back to the slide before that. There you go. In your Bible, perhaps, and in my version of the Holman Christian Standard, and in some, they have little brackets here, or they've got a little footnote there. They've got something there that says, hey, something's different about that, all right? If you don't see that then, then um, don't worry about it. But if it's there, here's why it's there. Because sometimes people ask me these questions, why is that there? What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that in the original writing that John did, this part was probably not there. Doesn't make it untrue, doesn't make it not really uh, important. Because what happened is people start to ask the question, why are there people hanging around this pool all the time? Why are all the sick people at this one pool? And so there's an explanation given, kind of like I'm giving an explanation to you right now about this is all about what's happening. Somebody wrote in waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down to the pool from time to time and stir up the water. And then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. So what they're saying is, and by the way, they're not saying that this is actually what happened, that an angel really touched the water and that people got healed. What they're saying is people went to this pool because they believed this to be true. They believed that if you could get in the water, when the water stirred, that you would be healed. And so if you thought there was a chance at all that you could be healed from a terrible disease, like being blind or lame or paralyzed, you would do whatever it takes to try to make that happen. We still do that today. We'll go to a doctor and he gives us an opinion. And if we don't like the opinion or we're concerned about the opinion, we get a second opinion. If we don't like that opinion, then we draw alternative medicine. If we don't like alternative medicine, then we go online and try to find something on Pinterest or Facebook or somewhere that will tell us what to do. Right? Like we are trying everything possible. Anything that will work. Like if your child or your grandchild's sick and they are really sick, you're going to do whatever is necessary to try to figure out a way to make it right. And that's what's happening here. People are thinking, man, listen, there were these springs that came into it that they probably didn't know about, but underground these springs fed into these pools. And every once in a while, because they were springs, they would bubble up a little bit. And as they bubbled up a little bit, they were thinking, well, that's angels touching it with their wings. And when the angels touch it with their wings, dive in. Whatever the reason... All of these hundreds of people laying around were there, and when the water stirred, they were trying their best to get to the water first because they thought that meant they were healed. And one man was there who had been sick for 38 years. 38 years. Now, when I used to preach this passage, I would talk about that's longer than I've been alive. That is no longer the case. But it's close, right? How, by the way, just how many of you in here are under 38? All right? Look at all those hands on the front row. All right? Some of you, some of you in the back are like barely putting your hand up. Like, if I was 38, I'd be like, it's me. I'm here, right? So how many of you are over 38? How many of us? Here we are. Look at us. There we go. All right. But here's the thing. 38 years. Now, this is his life for most of that time, Okay? Most of that time, this is his life every single 
day. He would wake up because you couldn't sleep at the pools. Someone, he would get a friend or someone on their way to work or somewhere to drag him on the mat to get him to his place. He would get his spot and he would sit where he could view the pool. And for 38 years, he would watch the pool to see if it stirred. And as soon as this stirring happened, he who could not walk tries every way he knows to get there. 38 years. Can I just tell you something? This is a confession to you. It's going to blow your mind. I really do not like to wait. Anybody here like to wait? Anybody here think, man, if I could just wait a little longer, it'd be awesome. Like when I'm at the grocery store, I pick the longest line and go like, man, I just, I hope this is the worst cashier so we can sit here for a long time. Man, that'd be really cool. Or you go to the doctor's office and you're like, man, I really hope like three or four of these people that came in after me get to go in front of me. That'd be great for them. Anybody do that, right? No, we don't like to wait. We don't like to be the ones that have to wait in any kind of position. I read this week about the Houston airport. This is a funny story to me. Um, the Houston airport, um, I've never been to the Houston airport. Some of our Brazil teams actually used it to connect, uh, may have connected on other mission trips. But the Houston airport uh, started to see lots of problems. They had one of the highest rates of complaints about the time it took for people to get their bags of anywhere in the country. So they evaluated their system. They worked on some stuff. They got their time down to eight minutes from the time the plane landed and got to the gate. Eight minutes until it was on the conveyor belt, which is in the industry leading time, like well under the average and one of the leading times in the industry. And yet their complaints were still some of the highest in the country. And so they they brought psychologists in. They brought all kinds of people. What is going on? Why are people so upset? We're leading the industry. And this is what they found out. It was only taking them eight minutes to get their bags from the plane onto the conveyor belt. But the gate to the baggage claim area only took one minute to walk. And so people were walking for one minute, getting there and waiting for seven. So you know how they solved the problem? They moved the gates. It now takes ten minutes to get the baggage claim. And when they get there, oftentimes their bags are waiting and their approval rating has gone sky high. They said it's not that people minded the amount. They just want to be doing something. And walking feels like they're doing something, all right? Some of you are those people, when you get in traffic, you will go 14 miles out of the way to keep moving instead of sitting in traffic that's going to break up in two minutes, right? Like you want to be doing something. Like it feels like I can't, I'm not doing anything. Waiting is a part of life. It's a part of what we do. It's a part of how we live. But what happens when you're waiting not on the next cashier at the grocery store or you're waiting not on your food to get delivered in a timely manner, but you're waiting on some significant thing to change in your life? Maybe something that you've wanted to change for a long time. Maybe something you've prayed about for a long time. Maybe something you've desired for a long time. Something you really, really want. What does it look like when you are waiting for something for a significant period of time? I think about this guy who's 38 years waiting. Every day he wakes up and nothing's changed. He can't walk. He's sick. He's ill. He can't move. Every day a part of his consideration of life is how do I overcome my illness? How do I overcome what I have? I think about it because uh, this week, actually, this week marks um, 28 years that I have lived with diabetes. 
type 1 insulin-dependent diabetic, which means every day I am dependent upon a, uh, for a long time in my life, for multiple shots a day to give myself insulin. Today I wear an insulin pump that gives me insulin. But I am dependent upon that for 28 years of my life. As I think through that, as I think through every day getting up and waking up and thinking about it, and luckily I live in a time and a day when it doesn't impact my life as significantly as it did at one point, but it's still a consideration. If I don't think about it, (laughs) I have to think about it pretty quickly because it causes problems. When I think about this guy sitting there for 38 days, the question that Jesus asked him almost seems ludicrous. Look at the next verse. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to the man, do you want to get well? Man, isn't that kind of a crazy question? Every day for 38 years, I've wanted to get well. Every day for 38 years, I've come and watched these waters for the chance that I'll be close enough that when the water bubbles, I'll get in and that will heal me because I have no other options. I mean, I can't imagine my doctor, my endocrinologist walking in one day and going, hey, um, we discovered a cure for your disease. Would you like to take it? Like only in a facetious, joking manner would he say that, right? Because if he says the word, we have found a, listen, if I see online that they're calling for a cure, I'm calling my doctor and saying, when am I getting that? Like, I'm not like that question boggles my mind. What do you mean? What what do you mean? Do I want to be well? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't ask questions unless they need to be asked. And so if Jesus is asking this man, do you want to get well? There must be a reason he is asking that question. And here is the reason he is asking that question. is because unless we want to get well, Jesus is not interested in making us well. That's a big statement, all right? Now, don't, don't mistake that for God doesn't love us and knows what's best for us. But he comes to each and every one of us and he offers this chance of a new life. But he's not going to force it upon us without us wanting it. And the truth is, most of us don't really want to ask for help. Now, I feel like, just to be honest with you, that we as guys get a particularly bad rap about this. Like people say, we don't want to ask for directions Like, we don't like to read the instructions. Like, we just like to do things on our own without that. Guys, you feel like we get a bad rap about that kind of stuff sometimes? Like, amen, all right? And I got, and I saw an American Psychologist magazine article the other day, and I got it, and it said that they had done an exhaustive three-decade test to test out that conclusion, and I'm glad to tell you that it shows that guys are more reluctant to ask for directions and will not ask for help when they need it. All right, does that surprise any of us, really? In fact, guys go to the doctor less. Guys, when they get to the doctor, tell the doctors about their symptoms less. They just say, it'll be all right. It's not a big deal. I won't tell them about it. And because of that, guys die seven years earlier than women, all right? So there's consequences. But here's the thing. We don't like to ask for help. And it got me thinking, this guy, Jesus asking him this because he wants to know, do you really want to get well? Is that what you want? 
You see, we kind of live under this assumption that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, in surveys, that's always one of America's favorite Bible verses. God helps those who help themselves. Here's the problem with that. You know the problem with that, right? It's not a Bible verse. Just like cleanliness is next to godliness is not a Bible verse. Sorry, moms. All right. It's not a Bible verse. And so you've said that. It's a good thing. I'm not saying it's not a good quote or saying, but it's not biblical. The truth is the Bible teaches almost the exact opposite of God helps those who help themselves. It teaches that God helps those who realize they can't do it themselves. Jesus walks up to this man and says, do you want to get well? Let me just tell you, there's some of you in this room, and you, you may be dealing with a physical thing. In fact, most of the things that we deal with for long term are more than physical. They're spiritual. They're emotional. They're relational. And you may not have been dealing with 38 years, but you may have been dealing for six months or a year or five years or 10 years or 15 years or 25 years. You're struggling daily or weekly with a relationship, with an attitude, with an addiction. And you are just continually in that cycle like this invalid who is sitting at the pool every day for 38 years waiting for something to happen. And you keep thinking everything's going to be all right. And some of you know exactly what it is you need to give up or you need to change or you need to do or what you need to say or you need to apologize to or what you need to stop. Some of you know exactly what it is. And you just keep living every day. With it hanging over your head. One of my responsibilities at Center Kid this year was to lead the adult gathering. That's what um, camp pastor and camp director kind of do together with the worship team. And one of the days that we um, do that always, they do this thing called, well, they do stations. And so um, if you've never been to camp or never experienced something like this, my job that day is just to kind of explain the stations and then get out of the way. And so there'll be five places set up all across the auditorium that we were using in, in, in Alabama. And each station has something you do there. So something you touch, something you feel, something you write. It's a hands-on experience. In this particular day, we were talking about peace. How that God gives us peace. That He prepares us with peace. And so each station dealt something with, um, with what happens in understanding God's peace. Now, they don't have to do them in order. You can do them whatever. And then there are the anal retentive people that do go one, two, three, four, five, because it would hurt them not to go in order. And then there are the rebels that go in all kinds of different orders. All right. And so as you watch, I just kind of watch them spread out. And then I kind of sit and let it just happen. And towards the end of that time, we're there for an hour and a half. Some people take 20 minutes and some people are there like when I leave in an hour and a half to go somewhere else. Towards the end of that time, I'm backstage working with our production manager on something for that night. And a guy comes around and asks for the director. And we don't know where the director is. So I, I can get her. We can call her. He goes, no, that's not a big deal. He said, can I just talk to you for a minute? And sometimes as a pastor, when somebody walks up to you and says, I really need to talk to you about something, it's not always positive. Okay? So you kind of get your guard up a little bit. Yeah, okay, we can talk. It's like when somebody at church walks up and Jeff and I are standing together. And since, since I've got the two of you together, like that's not good coming, all right? That's not, whatever's coming next is not good. It's not, since I've got the two of you together, we love you desperately. It's, here's what's wrong, all right? And we need you to fix it right now. And so they kind of had that, he kind of had that look on his face. It was a troubled look, like I really need to talk to you about something. And I was like, all right, man, we, all right, we'll talk. And so we walk out, and he, he gets me over kind of in the corner, and he just says, I just want you to know that I've been estranged from my parents for over 20 years. He said, I have an 11-year-old son. My mother and dad have never acknowledged that he exists. No cards, 
No visits, no phone calls, no birthday gifts, never acknowledged his existence. He said, the last time my parents came to our house, my 27-year-old son was six months old. He said, I haven't spoken to my mom in 15 years. He said, while I was sitting over there, can you imagine? Can you imagine? So I was sitting over there and we were, I was reading about at that station where I was doing the thing about Jesus being our peace and Jesus reconciling himself to us. I was overwhelmed by the thought that I need to do something about this now. And he said, I struggled with the question, is now the time? Is now the time? He said, I just want you to know I walked outside and I called my mom for the first time in 15 years. And we had a conversation, and she's open to continuing to talk. There had to come a moment when he said, I want to be made well. And whatever is happening in your life, whatever secret thing or non-secret thing is happening in your life, until you come to the place where you tell Jesus, I really want to, not surface level, not so everybody thinks I'm doing a better job, not so I'm just kind of making it a little bit better, but I'm talking about deep down change. Until you get to that point when you say, I am done, I am tired, I am ready, yes, I want it. My question is, well, why don't we? I mean, why don't we do something about that um, addiction to alcohol or pornography that is wrecking our lives and wrecking our marriages, wrecking our families. Why don't we do something about that? Why don't we do something about that relationship that we know is toxic to our walk with the Lord and yet we just continue to keep going back and keep going back? Why don't we do something when our marriages are starting to fall apart and it seems like we're going in two different directions? Why don't we stop and ask for help and do something? Why do we have to have God look at us and say, do you really want to get well? I mean, why did he have to ask this guy that question? There are a couple of things I can think of. We'll do these real quick. But first of all, we just, we're scared of change. It's amazing what people will learn to endure. We're scared. Of, whoa, 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 whoa. But if I really commit my life to the Lord, what is that going to mean for my friends? If I, if I really commit my life and do what God wants me to do, what's that going to mean for my job? How's that going to impact my social status at school? How's that going to impact my weekends? How's that going to impact how I spend my money? If I really, you know, I'm just scared of what my life is going to look like if I do that. You know what's interesting about this? All right, how long had this guy been sick? Remind me. 38 years, all right? There's another significant 38-year journey in the Bible that a lot of scholars think this refers to. And that is in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were supposed to go into the Promised Land and they stopped, they wandered in the desert for 38 years. What's amazing about that is right when they leave, Moses takes them to the place, and the first problem they have, they say, wait a minute, Moses, just send us back to Egypt. It was better in Egypt. We had food to eat in Egypt. And I know Moses wanted to look at him and go, you were slaves in Egypt, and you got used to it. You are free now. Why do you want to go back? Nothing great in your life for the glory of God, for the spread of his kingdom, will happen without significant risk and change. I just finished reading a book. I've already mentioned it once in a sermon um, by the president of Pixar and Disney Animation. And he was the one that helped start, I mean, found Pixar. 
Um, and he talks about when Disney bought them that he had to walk out to all of his employees that had, he had knew all, I mean, all the employees that had been hired by him under his leadership. He had to walk out and he was standing there with John Lasseter, who's the man behind Toy Story and Toy Story 2 and Frozen and Big Hero 6 and all of that. Steve Jobs, some of you know that name. President Bob Iger, the president and CEO of, of Disney. He said the four guys are standing on stage and they're there to announce to this company that this little thousand person company just got bought by the biggest entertainment company in the world. We got to do something about it. So he's got to talk to him about it. And he said, I made the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. He said, I walked out on stage and I said, I just want you all to know that nothing's going to change around here because Disney bought us. He said, now the truth is what he meant was they were going to operate as if Disney had not bought them and Disney had told them they could. But he said, what I didn't relay was change was going to happen all the time. And so constantly people were coming to him and goes, hey, you said nothing was going to change. What about Bob over there? He's got a different job. He's like, no, I meant Disney wasn't going to force that. But he said people were so ingrained with they don't like change that they didn't want to move when we needed to move. Now, let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad churches aren't that way? Right, we are, right? We are as individuals. Secondly, we not only fear change, we don't, we don't admit that we need help, not only because we fear change, but also because it, we deny the reality that exists. I saw this week a story about a documentary on a woman, 34-year-old woman, who had a tumor removed that weighed 300 pounds. Now think about that for a second. She had a tumor removed that weighed 300 pounds pounds they ask her in the documentary well why haven't you done something about this sooner and you know what her statement was she said i just thought it would go away by itself now i understand that if you've got a half pound tumor right maybe 10 ounces right but once it gets to 100 125 200 pounds there's probably something that needs to be done and while her situation was unique that answer is not We think it'll just take care of itself. And so our finances start to take a dip and we think it'll just handle itself. We have resentment and hatred and heartbreak. And your teenage daughter or son starts to walk away from the Lord, starts to partake in things that you know they shouldn't. And you think it's just a phase. It's just something that everybody has to go through. They'll just get done with it and then they'll come back. It'll take care of itself. Your marriage starts to to feel like it's splitting apart and you're going one way and your spouse is going another and you see the kids affected and you think something will happen. It'll, it'll take care of itself. You find yourself on a nightly basis looking at stuff on the internet you shouldn't look at. And you think, well, someday I'll just stop. When, it, when I can stop when I want to stop. And you take a drink at night just to calm your nerves. I can stop anytime I want to stop. It'll just take care of itself. And you're not listening to reality. And then we get ashamed of who we are and we think we can't do anything about it. Do you want to get well? But God doesn't really give an answer. He does, but that's a simple yes or no question, right? Do you want to get well? Yes. No. The guy gives an excuse. Sir, the sick man answered, I I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. And so when the water is stirred up here, I try to get down there, but someone goes in ahead of me. Jesus says, do you want to be well? And he's like, I I would if I could. I can't do anything about it. And that's exactly where Jesus wants him to be. In a place where he admits there's nothing he can do about it. We must realize that we cannot do it ourselves. If you want lasting, real 
change in your life. You cannot do it by yourself. You do not have the ability to do it. This man would have never been healed trying it on his own. So Jesus says you have to come to a place where you want help, where you realize you desperately need help and you can't do anything about yourself. And then the last thing we have to do is we just have to trust him. Look at what he says in here and then we'll finish. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Jesus says, when you've come to the end of yourself, when you realize you desperately need help, when you admit you can't do it on your own, and then you just trust me with your life. Now, here's what I want you to understand about what he asked him to do. See, we read this patch and we're like, cool, man. He asked the guy that couldn't walk to get up and walk. That's really cool. But what happened here is Jesus asked this man to do the one thing that the man thought was actually impossible to do. And when Jesus calls us to change, when Jesus calls us to be different, he does not call us with small steps first. He asks us for a big step at the beginning. All right, so think about this. You know, school starts in a couple of weeks, right? Right? I didn't get any oh no's from here. But those of you who have kids that have school, school starts in a couple of weeks around the counties here. And in this year, I've got Eli going into eighth grade. Luke is going into fourth grade, Maddie is going into first grade, and Ava starts pre-K at Madison Creek. They're all in, right? And think about Maddie for a minute, okay? Maddie's going to go into first grade. And Maddie gets into first grade, here's what I guarantee they're going to do. For the first few days, they're not going to do a lot of work, all right? And then as the weeks kind of progress, they're going to build up a little bit. She starts spelling tests this year. And so as they begin spelling tests this year, she will have real easy words to spell. The first week will be easier than the second week, will be easier than the third week, pretty much all the way through the end of the year. And the idea is the words this year will be easier than the words next year will be easier than the words next year, right? Right? That's how school works, right? And the idea is you give them something small, and they learn something small, and then they do something bigger, and they do something bigger. We watched the um, the movie Everest over the last couple of nights. Anybody seen Everest movie? All right. So it's a movie. It's a movie based on a true story about 1996 when more people lost their lives on the mountain at that time than any other time in history. All right? People were climbing up. They had an avalanche and all this stuff. But what, for, which was a kind of a crazy way to end a movie. It's all depressing. All right? But what happens is when you climb Everest, if you ever decide you want to go climb Mount Everest, you're nuts. But this is what they do, all right? They climb up to a certain level and they stay there for a couple of days. They climb up to a certain level, they stay there for a couple of days to let their body acclimate at each place to the new elevation. You can't just climb it all in one day. It's, you know, you can't just, oh, we're just going to go as far as we can to the top, stop and go to the top. You have to go acclimate, go acclimate. All right. That's how people generally deal with life change. I'm going to take one step here. And then as I take one step here and I get comfortable with that, I'll go to the next step. Jesus always asks us to do the hard stuff first. Like this guy would probably been like, man, if I could just kind of get up on my knees for a minute, test out, see if that's okay. Maybe I get up on one. Let me just kind of, let me kind of hit that leg a little bit. Let me make sure, let me shake it out. How long had it been since he'd walked? 38 years. I mean, we read this, we're like, yeah, man, Jesus, time to walk. Get up, walk. You can walk. But that guy's like, 38 years I hadn't walked. Is this like, instead of like taking a step down into the pool to kind of test to make sure the pool's okay, this is like taking your kid that's never swum before and saying, all right, go get on the diving board and jump off. It's like taking Maddie into first grade, laying some calculus down and say, work at it, figure it out. Right? This is big time stuff. This requires a step of faith 
where you are showing to him that you are not trusting in anyone or anybody or anything other than him. You're putting your life on the line and you are stepping out in faith. See, we've gotten used in condition that we can have small steps of obedience to Jesus. And there is obedience. Small steps are important. But Jesus often asks us to go from small steps of obedience to a huge leap of faith. To say, I'm trusting you. And for some of you in this room, the reason you've never broken free of that addiction or that relationship still haunts you or that decision still haunts you, the reason is because Jesus has asked you to do something radical and you said, no, 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 that's too much. That, no, 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 no. I mean, you know what? I know we need to protect some things around our house, but, you know, that's, that's, that's too much. You know what? I know that things aren't quite right with my husband or my wife, but... Like counseling, that's too much, Jesus. You mean I gotta break off that friendship? That's that's too much. You mean I gotta stop doing that? <laughs> that's that's too much. Jesus calls us to master's level commitment right away. But look at the results. Go back to that verse we just had up there, John. The one about him walking. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Instantly. 38 years erased. I I don't know what it is that you've been struggling with for weeks or months or years or decades. But I do know this. I do know That it's never too late to be healed and changed by Jesus. It's never too late to have your life radically transformed by Him. Just in the stories that we've talked about this summer, you had Jairus who thought his daughter was dead. And Jesus says it's not too late. In the story in John of Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus is dead for days to the point that say, "Don't don't open the grave, he stinks by now. It'll be ranked. Don't do it. And Jesus says, get up. Come on. Even to the point of on the cross where the thief asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus says, you're saved today. It's never too late. God's favorite moment to change your life is right now. And there are some of you in this room that need that. For some of you, it means for the very first time, coming to a place where you say, God, I can't do life on my own. I admit that I have messed up. I admit that I have made decisions I shouldn't have made. I have said things. I have thought things. I have done things I shouldn't do. I admit that, Lord. And today I am telling you that I can't do it on my own. But I'm trusting in you. The fact that you came. That you lived a life. You died on the cross to save me from my sins. And that you rose again from the grave. God, I want to believe in you. And for some of you, the step that he's asking you to take, your get up and take your mat and walk moment, is for you to walk literally down this aisle and say to me, it is time for me to be saved. It is time for me. It is time for me to have a new life. For some of you, it is that I've never done what we saw those three kids do today and be baptized. You think, I'm too old for that. You're never too old for that. I've never done that. After salvation, I didn't do that. Then I want to make that decision right. I want to do it right now. And for me, the big step that God's asking me to do is to lay down my pride and to come and to say before this church, I'm ready to move. For some of you, it is, I, don't, I want to be a part of this church. This is where God's called me and this is where God's implanted me. And you need to come down and we need to share that with the church today. And for some of you, 
It means that God has sought you out just like he sought this man out. He's asked you today, do you want to get well? And he's giving you an opportunity to respond to that today. Listen, you don't do it. God does it for you. But he expects you, expects you to trust him. And this morning, you want to come and pray. You want to come talk to me. You want to find somebody around you and talk to them. Just do respond the way God asks you to respond. Let's pray together.